I want to begin by thanking all of you who came yesterday to clean the church house and work outside. Mulch looks beautiful. I don't like the smell, but that's just me, but it looks beautiful. Thank you for those who cleaned inside, too. It's nice to have a clean church house, but it's nicer still to see God's people working together. It's just a sweet thing, very encouraging to me to see your love for one another and for the building God has given you. And if you don't know who I am, I am Jody Killingsworth. I'm an assistant pastor. My job primarily here is to plan the worship and lead the band and lead the worship services and the work of worship in our church. And I must confess, as, as being an assistant pastor... I don't preach very often, and uh, I've been eyeing Stephen Baker, who preaches a little bit more than me, but none of us preach often enough to get away with a series of sermons. Like, none of us get to preach through the book of Romans. That's okay. That's for Tim. But Stephen, I saw recently, if you've been tracking, has got himself a series going, and I've been a little envious of that, and I've been, trying to, I've been trying to figure out how I could get my own. And then I realized that I've done something to you in the past uh, year, um, which you have been very trusting to let me do, and that is I have thrust upon you the recitation of creeds. And I feel the burden of needing to justify that, explain it, because it, for many of us it's not something we grew up with. It's something I think even I have a, a somewhat of a suspicious attitude towards, believe it or not. Um, we used to do them when I came here once in a blue moon. I think David Canfield, if he's here, David, are you here? No. I think he asked me uh, if we could do it every other week, and we tried that for a while, and then in, in the past year, I've become convinced that it would be good for us to do them regularly. And I've had in my mind, as I've done the work of, uh, a lot of this has come out of teaching in the pastor's college, teaching on the, on the theology of worship, and we've done a lot of reading from the scriptures and from history and one of the things I see in, his, in the history of the church is an uh, almost universal acceptance of the ecumenical creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, and their place in worship, almost universal throughout the church. And my, uh, my MO when it comes to my work has been uh, keen off of a, an analogy that G.K. Chesterton uses, which I'll read to you now. If you want to understand me, this is what has really influenced my thinking. Chesterton says, in the matter of reforming things, and that's what I see we need to do in all kinds of areas in the life of the church today in America. We need to reform things, particularly worship, has fallen on hard times ever since the Second Great Awakening. Doctrine, practice, all kinds of things have fallen on hard times since then, but worship is one. 
that has radically changed in the wake of the Great Awakening. All of our assumptions, uh, the Second Great Awakening, all of our assumptions about worship have just changed. Things like creeds have gone by the wayside. Things like responsive readings, things like scripture lessons have gone by the wayside. So, Chesterton, in the matter of reforming things, as distinct from deforming them, there is one plain and simple principle, a principle which will probably be called a paradox. There exists in such a case a certain institution or law. Let us say, for the sake of simplicity, a fence or gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this, let's clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer, (laughs) that that would be us, (laughs) will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then when you come back and tell me that you do see a use for it, I may allow you to destroy it. I think that's a, well, it's, I think it's a good principle. It's, it honors the past. It assumes that the past, knew, the, the men of the past knew what they were doing, knew what they were about. Um, it assumes the best about them. And before, actually, but the reality is, where this, uh, this analogy breaks down is that the, uh, the fence has already been torn down. As I've been approaching the work of planning worship services, I've thought, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look back to particularly the early days of the Reformation to see what was important to those men who had just rediscovered the gospel, had rediscovered the Bible, had given it to the people. I think I can trust them on a basic level. I want to see what they thought was important, what they did, and then I want to build that fence back up so that we can saunter up to it, look at it, and say, well... I think I see what that is, and I'm going to tear it down. Or we can leave it up if we agree with it. But we can't judge unless we've put the fence up in the first place. Does that make sense? That's, that's been my thinking. That's been my approach to worship on a lot of levels since taking over this job a few years ago. Now, so I'm going to start a series. I don't know. This will be the first of a series The next one might be six months from now. I have no idea. The first of a series on the the ecumenical creeds. And it's an awkward, strange topic. Or, well, I'll get into that. It is awkward and strange. But the first of a series, an introduction sermon on a series of an awkward and strange topic, is all the more awkward and strange. So bear with that, okay? This might seem odd to you for a couple of reasons. It might seem odd because you don't know what on earth an ecumenical creed is. So let's clear that up if we can. An ecumenical creed is one of which we we just recited a while back, the Apostles' Creed. A creed. What is a creed? It comes from the Latin word credo, which simply means I believe. I believe. And so a creed is a statement of belief or a statement of faith summarizing the core beliefs of an individual or his community. Statement of belief that summarizes the the core beliefs of an individual or his community. That's a creed. An 
The word ecumenical, on the other hand, is a word that refers to the relationship between churches or between communities of churches. In this case, all those churches throughout the world that embrace the most basic and foundational doctrine of biblical faith, which is the Holy Trinity. The Trinity. The most basic doctrine of the Bible, the thing that sets a Christian apart from a heathen or from a worshiper of anything. The Christian God is one God in three persons, the God of the Bible. And, this, and everything that's Christian flows from that, his nature as one God in three persons. You could go on and on and on about that. In fact, everything we talk about Everything we do as Christians is rooted in that reality. And so these ecumenical creeds are those creeds which the churches, both in the East and the West, have agreed upon to be the good summations of the doctrine, the basic doctrine of the Holy Trinity, okay? Both in the East and the West, from the earliest centuries of the church, the churches have worked out these doctrinal statements about what Scripture teaches to be true about the nature of God as a one God in three persons, and they are preserved still almost exactly in their original form. It, of course, it's a translation, but almost exactly as they've always been for us still today. And they're still very much applicable because we are, they, these creeds were forged in doctrinal controversies of their day. Those con- doctrinal controversies have been protected, the church has been protected by these creeds because they have, they have stood as standards for sound doctrine. And yet those controversies are still with us today. New names, new faces but still the same old heresies, and they're still surrounded by them, and so the creeds are, on a basic level, still very much applicable and useful. Let's talk about the Trinity just for a minute. I want to reinforce this statement I made about the Trinity being the central doctrine of the Bible and the thing that sets us apart as Christians you know this verse from First Chronicles 16.26, all the gods of the nations are idols. And yes, the nations do have their idols. But the Lord, the true God, our God, he made the heavens. And he made those heavens not by himself. If we're talking about the Father God, but with the counsel and the power and the help of the other two persons of the Trinity, his son, the Logos, his word, who we know from from the first chapter of the Gospel of John to be Jesus, his son. It says this in the first chapter of John, in the beginning, sorry, Jesus, there we are, Jesus, who was in the beginning with God, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. 
Jesus was in the beginning with God, and nothing has come into being apart from him. And also the Spirit was there. We read in Genesis 1-2 that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And in Psalm 33, 6-7, this is said even more clearly. Listen to this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Think John 1, by the word of the Lord, the word, Christ. And by the breath of his mouth, this word breath in Hebrew is ruach, which means spirit. By the word and by the spirit, the heavens were made, all their host. And it goes on, he, referring to the, the, the breath, ruach, he, the spirit, gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. Remember he was hovering over the surface of the waters? Well, here it says, he gathered the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Each person of the Trinity is central to God's work of creation. They have always existed in perfect harmony, each fulfilling their role and service to the other. They are also, these three persons of the Trinity, indispensable to God's work of recreation, to his work of saving sinners, of redeeming us from our sin. There's examples of that everywhere in the New Testament, but none as succinct as the one that's found in Galatians 4, 4, 6. We wrote a song about it. You'll probably recognize these words. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the, adop- the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Trinity, they, each person of the Trinity have their unique and vital role in your salvation, working together in a mutual love for one another and for you. Belief in this triune God is what marks you out as a Christian. If the God, though, that you worship is anything less than one God in three persons, you are not worshiping the God of the Bible, but an idol of your own imagination, and you are by definition not a Christian. This is of the essence of being a Christian is to confess this God, the God of the Bible. And the creeds preserve the the doctrine of the Bible at the most basic level, God's Trinitarian nature. These ecumenical creeds are those simple summations of basic Trinitarian doctrine which have stood since the earliest centuries of the church in both the East and the West as the universally accepted symbols of basic Christian faith. These are the Apostles' Creed, the one we recited this morning, and also the Nicene Creed. Some people include the Athanasian Creed, but it's a harder case to make on a number of levels, either for its ecumenical nature its universal acceptance, or for its usefulness. It's a little more, it's longer, it's, it's like, it's a lot more intense. It's like, and if anybody, if anybody doesn't accept this doctrine, let him be accursed, every other sentence. So it's, it's really hard to imagine using it. 
Maybe it'd be good for us. So that's what the creeds are. But a series of sermons on them might also seem odd because, of course, none of these creeds are found in the Bible. Neither the Apostles, nor the Nicene, nor the Athanasian Creed are part of God's infallible word to men. Quite the opposite. They are nothing more than man-made affirmations of what God has previously revealed. They teach nothing new to us, but are merely an attempt on the part of a man, or the part of man, to give a summary of what God has once for all revealed to be true in his word. Therefore, the creeds are part of a body of literature that the church refers to as, does anybody know? You include the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you think of all of these documents, what do we refer to them as? Subordinate standards. Subordinate to what? Subordinate to God's word. They're only authoritative insofar as they accurately reflect his word. And even when they nail it, which I believe that the ecumenical creeds do, if you understand their meaning here or there, several difficult bits, like I was going to preach a sermon this morning on the Holy Catholic Church, because that's what got my brain thinking about this. Every time we do the creeds, I think, what? No, wait, what does that mean again? And after I read about it, I don't think I've ever understood it until this week. So just so you know, I've probably given you the wrong idea about it on some level, trying to explain it. We'll get there. I'm, I realized, though, as I thought about it, that I, I bore the responsibility of, of, since I thrust the creeds on you, of defending their place here in our worship, explaining them, educating us all about their, not only their validity, but also their proper place, which is what I'm starting to do now, Right? They are subordinate standards. They are not God's word. So why am I preaching a sermon series on them? Well, because if they're going to be here, I, we, I bear the, and if I put them there, I bear the responsibility of explaining their existence and also any of those difficult bits. So I don't know that I'm going to explain every, every phrase of the creed, but especially those difficult bits or the bits I think we need a fuller understanding of so that we can enjoy all the more the opportunity to confess the truth of them. Those would be the Holy Catholic Church. Um, He descended into hell. The communion of saints. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, I think. Is that in the Nicene Creed? That's in Scripture. (laughs) Even when subordinate standards hit the nail on the head, they are still, at that point, subordinate to Scripture. Okay? So you probably thought you were coming to hear God's Word taught, right? Don't worry, I believe that you are. That's what this is about, actually. This is a bit of a strange introduction to creeds, but in order to put them in their proper place and to make us feel comfortable with them, 
I, I intend in, on some, in some sense to kill them, to subordinate them before us so that we understand their proper place and are free then to enjoy them in the place, in the role God has for them, okay? If a creed or any other subordinate standard is in any way contrary to God's word, either by its very existence or by the inaccuracy of its doctrine, it must be rejected by men of good conscience. I want to read a quote from another subordinate standard, the Westminster Confession, to drive this point home. This is a beautiful paragraph from the Westminster Confession. It says this, God alone is Lord of the conscience. Classic phrase, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it, contrary or beside it, in matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commandments out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience to these man-made statements is to, or laws is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Now that was wordy, but you all, I think that first phrase resonates and says it all. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has set you free from the commandments of men. And so if we find in these creeds the commandments of men, things that are contrary to Scripture, or things that try to compete with Scripture, as, and stand up tall and proud and try to be an equal authority to Scripture, we should reject them as a violation of our freedom in Christ. God has set us free to be, to be under his own authority and none other. So questions concerning the accuracy of certain doctrines that are expressed in the ecumenical creeds will be addressed in future sermons. And there are serious questions to ask. But this morning, our task is merely to try and answer the more fundamental questions. Are creeds scripturally legitimate? And do they have a place in our worship? So with those questions in mind, let us turn to this morning's text, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Very much unlike the ecumenical creeds and other subordinate standards, this is God's word, and it is eternally true. Let's read it together. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I'm going to read it again. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, 
and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word has communicated to us the work, the power, the authority of your son, Jesus. And that through faith in him, you have set us free from all commandments of men, all slavery to sin, in order to worship you in truth and in spirit. Help us now, Lord, as we try to glean from your word all that is profitable. Would you give us the help of your Holy Spirit? And would he make this hour fruitful? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice in these verses that the Apostle Paul gives two prerequisites here, two conditions that must be met in order to obtain eternal salvation. One, confession with the mouth, and two, belief in the heart. He states this twice in these verses and in a different order each time. In verse 9, he begins with the outward act of confession and moves inward to the belief of the heart and then immediately does a U-turn and proceeds out the way he came, starting first this time with the internal, invisible world of the heart, moving outward to the external, visible world or discernible world, critiquable world of the confession of the mouth. Both of these, though, clearly, I think the way he, is, he, he does this in-out movement, he means to teach us that these are inseparable aspects of what will equal a solid hope of heaven. These are inseparable aspects of what will equal a solid hope of heaven for us. I believe that's what he means to teach us. However, that does not mean that these aren't to be distinguished from one another, confession and belief, nor that one doesn't take a clear priority over the other. Indeed, while there is an aspect of inseparability to these two prerequisites, there is still a vital difference between them, as well as a a priority among them which we must carefully observe. Our eternal destiny, I would say, is at stake with how we understand and approach faith and profession of faith and their relationship and their order. Both are essential to our salvation, but we must hold them in their proper places. Let's discuss the two aspects that Paul gives us here of, of salvation, each in its turn, beginning where Scripture always puts the emphasis, the heart. The letter of Paul to the Romans, which is where chapter 10 falls, it's in a letter to the Romans by the Apostle Paul, the overall argument is a meticulous working out of a glorious theme that's summarized beautifully in this very chapter in verse 4. It says in verse 4 of chapter 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, To everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. to, To everyone who believes. Christ is the end of what law? Well, the law of Moses clearly is what Paul has in view in his argument in this book. 
the law of Moses, the law, the, on Mount Sinai, which is the symbol of which is, of course, the Ten Commandments, the law written on tablets of stone. Christ is the end of the law of Moses for righteousness for everyone who believes. What does that law of Moses say? I'm not asking what the Ten Commandments are. I think we're starting to get those under our belt, finally. But as a whole, what do they yell at you? It's one of those questions that you couldn't possibly answer, isn't it? But it... They yell this, keep this law and live. Break this law and be damned. That's what they yell. They're yelling it all the time still today. That's what they've always yelled. Are we able to keep this law of Moses that yells these things at us? Keep this and live. Has, have, how are you doing with that? <laughs> Haven't we broken it? Time without, times without number. Even perhaps this very morning. What or was righteousness ever meant to come to us through our own keeping of this law? Is that why God gave it to us so that it might become for us the source of eternal life? No, the law was added, Paul says, not so that our transgressions would decrease, not so that we would come to the law and feel that it was a a means for elevating ourselves closer to God, a vehicle for finally transcending our flesh. Absolutely not. Paul says exactly the opposite. I'm looking for the quote. It did not come in that so that our transgressions would decrease, but that so they would increase. So that they would increase. So that all of us would be so entirely without hope. So utterly sunk, so far gone, that we would despair of ourselves and turn in faith to the righteous one, Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of the law. It's our schoolmaster driving us to Christ who is righteous, who has fulfilled it, who did this and lived. So so the law came in so that transgressions would increase, so that we would be despair of ourselves and be driven to Christ in repentance and in faith. Save me, O God. Save me, Lord Jesus Christ. So that it would be said of us as it was said of Abraham. Do you remember this? It said this of Abraham in the Old Testament. That Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What righteousness? 
what righteousness was credited to Abraham? The righteousness of Jesus Christ in its totality was credited to Abraham. Right? Christ in all his purity. Christ in all his self-control. Christ in all his honesty. Christ in all his love. Christ in all his faithfulness. In all his boldness. All of his consistency. All of his integrity. And on and on and on. The full account of Christ's merit credited to Abraham. By faith. Abraham Before he lifted a finger, he had heard God's call. Abraham, I'm going to give you, leave your country and follow me. I'm sending you to a country that I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. And and through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And before Abraham lifted a finger, before Abraham was circumcised, before The law of Moses came and he knew how to please God. Before any of that, Abraham believed. And it was credited to him as cha-ching. The full account of Christ's righteousness. Abraham's by faith. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. It can be said of you. It can be said of me. That Jody believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Corey believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What does believing in our hearts get us? It gets us righteousness. And what does that righteousness get us? Well, it gets us peace with God. It gets us adopted by him as sons. It gets, it gets us our prayers answered. It gets us a table spread before us in the presence of our enemies. It gets us confidence to stand in his presence with the presence of his glory with great joy. So I ask you a a question of the utmost importance, the, the most basic question. Have you believed in your heart before you raised a finger to try to please God? Have you seen that Christ alone can please God? has pleased God and offers you in the gospel his own righteousness free of charge through believing. And if you do have that, I pray that you do, if you do have that, what more could you possibly want? It's a bit of a trick question. Because I believe this passage has a lot more to 
teaches us to expect something more. It flows from this, but there's more. You have a faith that justifies you. And that faith is seated in the heart, and it results in righteousness. What more could you possibly ask? Well, once, our, once a soul has closed on Jesus Christ by faith and has experienced his righteousness credited to it, once that's happened to us, few of us at that point have the luxury of just dying and going to heaven, do we? The thief on the cross who turned to Jesus in his last hour and found that he was accepted by him is a bit of an exception. The rest of us go on for some time and face many difficulties and many trials and many temptations and many, 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 many sins. What more could you want than be justified by faith alone? Well, that you be preserved in that faith. Right? Till you die. We don't just need grace for our justification where Christ's righteousness is applied to our account and our sin is applied to him and punished on the cross. We don't just need grace for that, for our justification. We also need it for our sanctification, for our progress in holiness, for our perseverance in the faith. And it's just this grace that we gain access to when we confess with our mouths. It's this sanctifying grace. This is key for the doctrine of worship. It's this sanctifying grace that is ours or that we have access to through confession of the mouth. Now, where is that? We'll look at verse 10. It says, with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. We understand that. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Salvation, in this case, is like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. This is not, this is not I prayed the sinner's prayer and I got saved kind of statement. A man confesses with his mouth and the result is salvation in an ultimate sense. 1 Peter 1.5 refers to a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. At, at the final day, when the, at the revealing of the sons of glory. Our final glorification is what Paul has in view here. The promise of heaven fully realized. So how does confessing Christ with our mouths result in our ultimate salvation at the last day? This is where a discussion of the church and worship, and the means of grace comes in. And this is the category now in which the creeds fall, but even still in a subordinate place within that category. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Jesus asks his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall, be bound in, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed on, in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Here we have the institution of the Christian church. I've never thought of it this way, but I'm sh- I've struck as I was studying it this week that that's what this is. This is the institution of the Christian church. It's not the commissioning of it. That happens in, after the resurrection in Matthew 28. Go into all the world. The great commission. And nor is it the empowering of that commission by the Holy Spirit, which came after that in Acts 2. But this is an in- the institution of the church. Upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus establishes the institution of the visible church on earth here, to which he grants incredible powers of binding and loosing. In verse 19, and to which God establishes Peter, whose name means rock, along with the other disciples, I believe, If we compare this to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where the the apostles are said to be collectively the foundation stones of the church. Upon this rock, what rock is he talking about? Well, he's, I believe, talking about at least he means all of the disciples and whatever they have just done that tipped this off, got this going, this institution of the church. And I believe it is their profession of his lordship. The whole thing springs from a profession of faith, which Christ elicited from them with these questions. Do you see that? Well, this tells us, I believe, several things about the church and our relationship to it and its role in our lives. Look at verse 18. I will build my church, says Jesus, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Here the church is described as an impregnable fortress. I know it's probably not a, like, a, a defensive idea, but it is a safe idea. <laughs> okay, The gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is this sense of Satan will not prevail against it, even if it's us who are going on the offensive, right? There's safety. There's assured assured victory within the church. Here's what Calvin said about it. Against all the power of Satan, the firmness of the church will prove to be invincible because the truth of God on which the faith of the church rests will ever remain unshaken. And to this statement corresponds that saying of John, quote, this is the victory which overcometh the world, your faith, end quote. It is a promise which 
eminently deserves our observation that all who are united to Christ and acknowledge him to be Christ and mediator will remain to the end safe from all danger. All who acknowledge him to be Christ and sole mediator will remain to the end safe from all danger. And this is what makes Calvin such a brilliant pastor. Of course, he gives you immediately the other side of the equation. Yet this passage also instructs us that so long as the church shall continue to be a pilgrim on the earth, she will never enjoy rest, but will be exposed to many attacks. For when it is declared that Satan will not conquer, this implies that he will be her constant enemy. While, therefore, we rely on this promise of Christ and feel ourselves at liberty to boast against Satan and already triumph by faith over all his forces, Let us learn, on the other hand, that this promise is, as it were, the sound of a trumpet calling us to be always ready and prepared for battle. By the word gates is unquestionably meant every kind of power and of of weapons of war. So Jesus is not promising to carry us into the skies on flowery beds of ease, right? As As the song we sing says, But he is promising final protection from Satan within the church for those who enter in through the door of the sheepfold and not over the wall some other way. Such a promise of protection is not made to individual Christians, but to the church. Not to those of us who are faithful every morning with our quiet times and yet kiss off the ministry of the church in our lives. Promises of safety are not made to those people, to individuals, but to the church. The Westminster Confession, again, says, outside the church there is not normally any possibility of salvation. Now why would it say that? Well, it says that because the New Testament makes such a deal out of the church. It calls it our mother. As such, she not only protects us from the attacks of Satan, but also nurtures us in our faith like a nursing mother. She does this by dispensing to all within her fold the means of grace. And one of the central points we have to keep in mind, it's, I'm learning and I'm being very helped by, is that when we talk about the means of grace, one of the things that sets us at odds with people who accept the Apostles' Creed with us is that we don't see these means of grace as justifying grace. Nothing we do here this morning that we perform, that we partake of, nothing we say or confess, justifies us before God. We gave up on that years ago, I hope. These are means of sanctifying grace. They stir up our faith. They strengthen us. Faith is the object, the power, the justification. Faith, belief in the heart. He who believes in the heart, what does it say? I'm not quoting it right. With the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. 
not with the Lord's Supper, partaken, resulting in righteousness. The church gives us the means of grace, the Lord's Supper and baptism. She also preaches to us, but that has a a dual purpose. It calls people who are outside in, and it encourages people who are inside. And the Word and the Spirit are powerful but the, to do both things. But these things belong to the faithful, and they are sanctifying graces in our life. How do we gain access? This is, I'm, I'm coming to it, okay? How do we gain access to these sanctifying means of grace? What grants us entry into the visible church? It is this verbal confession that Romans 10 requires of us and what we see Peter doing in Matthew 16, verse 15. Who do you say that I am, Peter? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a verbal profession that the church needs from us in order to give us, to to consider us her own, and to feed us from her table. It's this verbal profession. He is the Christ, I believe. The church is not founded on symbols, but on Christ. Not on any words of man, but on the word of God. Yet, we see here that it is a It is founded on Christ as confessed by men. You see that? It's founded on Christ as confessed by men. Peter makes his confession and and he says, And I say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter gives us the first creed of the Christian church. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The first response of the the heart that believes, confessing that belief with its mouth. Who do you say that I am? This question Christ asks of us still today. And I, as as his minister, am going to ask you now, who do you say that he is? Who is this man to you? Forget about the apostles and the Nicene Creed. What's your creed? What's your confession? Do you have one? Examine your heart. Remember that a creed, a profession, these things gain us access to, they're of of the category of sanctification. And they flow, it flows from a heart that has closed on Christ by faith. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's your creed? What's your confession? Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Does your heart stir within you when you consider his words and his works? When you hear the question asked of Peter, does your heart cry out with him, Oh yes, I know, he, I know too that he is Lord. He is the Christ, the Messiah. 
the Holy One of Israel, the Lamb of God, the world's Redeemer, my rock and my fortress. He is my hope. He is my righteousness. Do you have that testimony in your hearts? Do you have a creed? This is the fundamental question of your life. I, I advise you to care nothing for the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed until you have settled that you have a confession to make. As I said, I'm starting this series on the creeds by putting them to death. But supposing you have a sincere creed of your own, a confession that you acknowledge Jesus as the Lord freely and gladly with your mouth. What are we to make of these ecumenical creeds? What good are they? Well, in closing, let me try to give you, sketch out some reasons why I think they're good. Number one, creeds are good For the church, they help us distinguish between true and false professions. It's Unfortunately, we don't have the luxury in this world, in this life of saying, when somebody says, well, who do you say that he is? I just believe the Bible. What the Bible says about him, that's what I believe. Because think of how many people hold to the Bible. It's, It's... Not to put the Bible down at all, but it just simply doesn't work in that way. The Bible's not suited to that, to answer that question in this world, in the reality of a church that is beset with heresy. Confessions of faith, creeds, are necessary, unfortunately necessary, I guess I would say, in this world that is that has Satan roaming around, around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The church is commanded by God to test the spirits. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. And this is the problem. This is, we have to test the question. The question has to be asked, who do you say that he is? And a creed is what helps us answer that question. You can hold up the Athen- you can hold up the uh, the Apostles' Creed and say, but "What about this about Jesus? What about this about Jesus?" And each of these are placeholders for hard-won theological battles that matter. And a person who subscribes to it freely, you can, in good conscience, say, "Well, put her there, brother. That's wonderful. You believe in the Trinity." we're off on a good start. It can't be said of our neighbors who call themselves Christians. It can't be taken for granted. 
So creeds help us distinguish between true and false professions of Christian faith. Second thing I would say is that the ecumenical creeds are a minimum test of what is required to be believed in order to claim the name of Christ. And so as a minimum test, they're very helpful in the question uh, as the elders have to face all the time, who to allow into the church and who to refuse. And it's just very helpful to have a standard in our work that we can look to and say, we can accept this. And it, unfortunately, we live in a time that has new Trinitarian heresies that we're facing, and I think we're going to have to consider very carefully the doctrine of sexuality and how it distinguishes between a true and a false profession. That's how wicked of a day we live in. We need some new tools to help us distinguish true and false professors. Apostle, the Apostles' Creed, I want you to know, goes back the furthest of the three, and it is the source document for the Nicene Creed, I think also the Athanasian on some level, and they are further workings out of Trinitarian doctrine. But they, it served both through the for much of the history of the Roman Catholic Church, and even at the time of the Reformation in John Calvin's church, as the baptismal vows that were taken. You know, we have vows at baptism. They're not unlike the Apostles' Creed. But what a person would do, a candidate for baptism, he would come and he would say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And he would professed that in front of the congregation, and they would baptize him. They were the test of admittance to the sacraments. That profession of the Apostles' Creed. So it, it, has, uh, it has this very important role that it has played in history. And, I wanna, and it's also written liturgically to be used in that way. Not all confessions have, are written like that. The Westminster Confession of Faith doesn't rattle off the tongue very well in worship. I believe that the Lord alone is Lord of the conscience, and so on 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 and so on. There is a creed that Alex McNeely um, has put up on this clear note songbook that you should check out. Is it the Helvetic Confession or the Belgic that was written to be used in chunks on the Lord's Day? So it's Heidelberg, thank you. The Heidelberg Confession, you should check that out for free on the Clear Note Songbook, thanks to Alex McNeely, it's, it's amazing. It's divided up into 52 Lord's Days, and it's a couple of questions, and it could be that in some year, soon, we'll switch over to that for a while and try it for a year as, uh, in place of our creed, so that we will confess the truths of Scripture over the course of a year, a year-long creed. We might try that sometime. These are liturgical creeds. The reason they're in our worship is because they're meant to be in worship. They're baptismal vows. 
Well, yeah, but I took, I ha- I'm already baptized. Why are we saying it every week? I'm not getting rebaptized. Well, you are coming to the table. And it's not inappropriate to remember your vows. That is what you're, we're doing, by the way. Not only when we confess the apostles of the Nicene Creed, but when we sing our hymns. When we read scriptures responsively. I hope you realize this. It's kind of a scary thought. You are obligating yourself to that God by vow. I believe in God the Father Almighty. What have you just done? You have obligated yourself by confession to live in such a way as pleases him. We're making vows. We're fulfilling our vows to the Lord in the company of all the righteous. But the third and last, and, I'd, and, and I've said it already, but I believe the most important thing for us to realize about the creeds is that when we recite creeds, as with all other aspects of our work and worship, we by no means do we do it thinking that it makes us right with God. There are no magic words in church. There are no magic meals. There are no magic sermons. Holy Spirit, the Trinity, works all of it by faith. And it must be engaged in, used on the basis of a fundamental faith that sits in the heart and And if it's there, it will come out with joy as we have opportunity to confess the truths, the names of our Lord. And amen. Let's go now to the Lord's Supper. Elders, would you come forward, please?